0: Hmm. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 367 of x Laps, where we are still making our first lap since coming back here. We have not hit every book yet, and, uh... Boy, it might be a few episodes before we do, because there are just so damn many of these. You'll remember how when we started this project, there were six ongoing X-Books, and even then, like, we thought that was too many? What sweet summer children we were, because, uh... Well, we probably should have seen what was coming It's, uh, it's you know, American comics It's kind of what they do They take an idea and they expand it just as far as humanly possible And then they expand it a little bit more <laughs> And I think that's about where we are at this point In our um, hawks, pox, rock socks, docks whatever uh, coverage here uh, Today we're going to be talking about Knights of X number 3 Which is the middle issue of this run here This uh, series is only going five issues which uh, I think is a good thing. It's going to be replaced with a little bit more of the same, but uh, we'll worry about that another time. For now, let's discuss the issue before us here. Knights of X number 3, which had an August 2022 cover date. The story is called Part 3, Kill Ya Dollings," Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Bob Quinn. Colors, Eric Arshinaiga. Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Akoi Brunstad, White, Cebulski. Cover price, four bucks. This one went on sale June 22, of 2022. And we open at the floating kingdom of Roma Regina, where she and Saturnine are trying to coax Dragon Baby Shogo into watching a fight wherein a big sacrifice is supposed to be happening. You see, someone very close to him, and someone he cares about, will die today. Now remember, this is Otherworld, where the rules of resurrection work a bit differently. So anyone who dies here can be brought back, but they're going to... Kind of be scrambly it's, it's, They're not going to come back the same They're going to come back perhaps an amalgamation Of all their various variants So uh Who's your money on? It certainly couldn't be the guy who's on the cover of the issue Right? It couldn't, couldn't be him right? Hmm. Anyway, from here We zip down to the crooked market Where Gambit's half of the cocks are fighting off a of fury Now Gambit's team includes Kylan, Bay, and Megan And honestly Just as quickly as the fight begins Megan gets all OP, summons up a tornado, and sends the Fury flying back to the Everforge. Not terribly exciting, but, uh, I mean, it's Bob Quinn art, which is great, as always. Now, once the dust settles, Rachel swoops in, and, um... Well, her gimmick at the moment is that she is very, very thirsty for Betsy Britton. Now, some of the youngsters of Otherworld see her, and they refer to her as Escani, claiming to have heard that word in a story. I don't know how... The tales of Ascani would have made it to Otherworld, though that's not to say there's no way they could have, right? Um, Now, at some point in history, Rachel was known as Mother Ascani. It's one of the possible futures. I want to say this was during the Robert Weinberg run on Cable, which is one of those runs I always think about rereading if I had the time, but then realize I don't, (laughs) and uh, realize that, uh, I don't know, it's kind of an ephemeral Type story where like uh, I think I kind of have to be in that place To get as much out of it as I did the first time I don't think it really Works upon reread At least uh, at least not to me but I am a Particularly odd case Maybe we'll just pretend that these uh, Weinberg issues fell into other worlds Somehow and these kids read them I don't know Anyway Rachel is like I said She is very very painfully Curious about Betsy's whereabouts And it's kind of a uh, It's wildly unsubtle. It's, I don't know. You know, there's a school of thought that you write characters as... characters. And then I guess there's another school of thought where you don't. I don't know. Anyway, before she can get her answer, unfortunately, duty calls. Now, Kylan informs the Cox that Mad Jim Jaspers is about to be executed for his crimes against reality. It's said here that this is a sort of composite Jim Jaspers. I'm not sure if that's something that's been established just yet. But that is to say, he's not necessarily the one from the old UK Marvel superhero stories where he created the Fury. Though he's not necessarily not him as well. He's a composite. And so our heroes take it upon themselves to decide to rescue him. Bay the Blood Moon even shouts, For the Witch Breed, as they do so, which... Ew, uh, pretty pretty cringy. Uh, From here, double-page spread of roll, call, and cred. Our characters today include Saturnine, Betsy Britton, Richter, Bay the Blood Moon, Megan Braddock, Kylan, Merlin, Roma Regina, Rachel, Shatterstar, Gambit, Shogo, Mordred, and King Arthur. And I guess, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but I guess Rachel's not going by prestige anymore? Or has she not been going by prestige for a while? I don't remember. Anyway, back to comics, and we are over to Betsy's crew, who are currently working their way through the vampiric Sevileth. That's that other realm of Otherworld. Now, Richter and Shatterstar behead a couple of vampires as they make their way to... wherever it is they're going. They're having a really good time killing these passerby vampires, though, which doesn't strike me as being terribly heroic. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about that later. I... Like I said, there's a school of thought, where characters are written as being multidimensional and complicated, and then, well, then there's this. And hey, full disclosure, I'm not saying I could do this any better. <laughs> if I could, I would be, and I, I am certainly no writer. I can absolutely appreciate the difficulty and challenge laid before anyone who, uh, who tries to write. From here, our scene shifts over to King Arthur and his geeks. Uh, we learn here that Arthur considers the vampires of Sevileth to be allies, Though, that doesn't necessarily mean that Arthur and his goons are safe from being eaten, bitten, rended to shreds should the vamps get hungry. We hop back to Betsy, who's here in Sevoleth to chat up Death. Hey, remember him? That's a anubis headed son. Also known as the only original horseman who anybody remembers? Yeah, him. Betsy comments on how the decor has changed in Sevoleth since the last time she was here, and, and it has, it indeed has, Uh, The last time we saw it, during the tail end of Excalibur, it was more like Dark Shadows. It was, like, traditionally gothic. The sort of place you might imagine a vampire or several hundred vampires might hang around at. Now it's a bit more, um, like, streamlined, futuristic-looking. It kind of looks like, if you're familiar with, um, the Assassin's Creed games, where, you know, you're in, you know, the past. You're in sometimes the ancient past, and then you'll happen across a cave that has, like, all these, like... Laser lights going through it. It looks all futuristic and anachronistic. Kind of looks like that. At least, at first blush. Anyway, she tells Death that she's looking for the Siege Perilous. And of course, that's that brooch thing that's also a portal. Uh, She even offers Death the opportunity to join them in tracking it down. And he turns it down. He says, no, I'm, I'm having too much fun. Being repeatedly drained of his essence by vampires? Well, uh, take that, Betsy. <laughs> now, uh, Bets gives him the you're-our-only-hope spoo before being interrupted by Richter. Now, Rick presents the grimoire of suggesting that the answer as to the whereabouts to the Siege Perilous might be inside. And he also reminds us and I think we might have already knew this that uh, he had Doug Ramsey and Bay the Blood Moon both attempt to decode and translate some of Siege Perilous writings which we find out Doug actually could translate. But, well, these writings were far too vague to be of any real assistance. Now, Richter asks if Death might consider giving the notes a scan through and see if he might help clear things up any, and, well, he does. Now, this takes us into, I think, flashback land. Time is weird in other other worlds, so it could be anytime. I'm guessing it's not too terribly long ago. It's here we're finally given our first glimpse into the locked-off otherworldly kingdom of Mercator. Which, to this point, we've only ever heard of. We never even saw the person in charge of it, you know? Though, this was kind of one of those worst-kept secret things to those of us with a bit of experience. experience. Now, it's confirmed here, pretty much what we all guessed, uh, that the place is run by Mr. M. That's Absalon Mercator. And, I mean, Mercator is his last name, so it was not exactly a case for Sherlock Holmes or anything like that. Now, we see Mr. M, who you could very easily mistake for a fedora-wearing Charles Xavier. He's chatting up someone. It's pretty apparent that the other party present is a... But they're purposely keeping that vague. They're not showing him, maybe there's a reason for this, maybe there's a, a shoe left to drop. Anyway, A or whoever it is, hands the Siege Perilous over to Absalon for safekeeping. When asked how he got it, E simply says that a human had it, and now they don't. So, um, well, we're definitely missing a story beat or two here, because the last time we saw the Siege Perilous was back in Wolverine and the X-Men number 35, when it was being held by Wilhelmina What's-Her-Face from the Hellfire Tots. So I guess we have to assume that she... Lost it or gave it to a human? Or maybe they gave it to another human? Who knows how many humans had it in the meantime? But uh all we know for now is that he didn't get it from Wilhelmina. Anyway, Mr. M is told to keep Mercator locked up until the Great Sacrifice is made, at which time he is uh, being directed to open his realm to the mutants. So maybe we're getting a little bit of uh, prescience here from uh, Apocalypse, or... Maybe just Otherworld kind of being like a Arthurian legend storybook uh, tells him what's going to happen? I really don't know. Otherworld's weird. We know this. From here, we hop over to an info page, and it's all about Mr. M. Well, a bit about Mr. M, anyway. Now, of course, we have talked briefly about him before. He was on that list of Omega mutants way back in House of X number one. Plus, I think I might have mentioned him again when we found out that he shared his name with one of the kingdoms of Otherworld. I think we might have posited that he was the one behind it. I'm pretty sure we did. Anyway, this info page mentions how he lived in District X, which was that weird pre-House of M Bishop police procedural series, which I can barely remember. Uh, There's also mention that Mr. M was one of the 198, and that is uh, those mutants who didn't lose their powers after Brian Bendis and the Scarlet Witch cocked everything up for the X-Men for decades. Back to comics, and we join Richter and Shatterstar for a chat, and they, uh, well, they're still giddy as all get-out for beheading those poor vampires, which, again, not terribly heroic. Um, Now, uh, Richter suggests that, you know, a sacrifice has to be made, and, well, since he was Apocalypse's pupil and this whole grimoire of a-thing, you know, has given his life meaning, maybe he ought to be that sacrifice. Now, Shatterstar is not a fan of this idea, but won't stand in his way. Richter suggests that maybe, when he's resurrected, Shatterstar will love the new him, the new amalgamated composite form, the otherworldly resurrected form of him, even more. Now, this touching scene is interrupted by Betsy, who is ready to head back to the Crooked Market to join the rest of the cocks. Mordred hates this idea, but, like, Betsy, like, rips into him, like, lashes out at him like he was a child. She's just, like, really, really laying into him. And it seems weird, and it seems out of character, but we're about to learn that her extreme reaction might actually make a bit of sense. This is actually kind of clever. Anyway, as it's been decided, they will be going back to the crooked market Shatterstar makes with the teleporting. Now, back at the market, it's time to fight more Furies. And, I mean, I'm not sure why Megan doesn't just whoop up a few more tornadoes and send them packing like she did the first one, but I guess we got pages to eat, so we're not going to do that. Now, upon arrival, thirsty Rachel grabs Betsy by the shoulders to scold her for how worried she made her, which is, which is annoying, unsubtle, and shallow. But we don't got time to dwell, because it's fight time. Now, as the battle rages on, Arthur's vampire pals all rush Mordred. Now, this seems like uninstigated, like they're ignoring the other cocks to rush at Mordred. And Rachel, she's fl- she's hovering above, and she posits that maybe Mordred's mutant power is the same mutant power I seem to have, which is that uh, people just don't like him and want to kick his ass. Which kind of explains why Betsy tore into him last scene, maybe, right? If that is the case, that is... That is quite clever. I kind of like that idea. It's not a uh, useful power, or I guess it could be a useful power as a a diversion. But it's interesting to think about, you know. This guy, he's just swarmed upon because he's Mordred, (laughs) and we don't like him. Anyway, Gambit and the gang make their way up to Jim Jaspers, and Megan frees him. Just then, we look to the skies and see Merlin. He's spotted, and he's charging in from above on Dragonback. Gambit demands his teammates vacate the area so he can deal with the evil wizard He reaches into his jacket pocket and pulls out a tarot card Any guesses which card? Any? Any guesses? Yeah, it's death Um, Now I think these are from that deck of cards he stole from Saturnine's closet back before Exit 10s, maybe don't know. Anyway, Merlin approaches. Gambit says that he ain't scared. After all, he has already been death. And yeah, that is true. Um, very, very briefly, Gambit was Apocalypse's horseman of death. Now, this was during the Blood of Apocalypse arc from the Peter Milligan run, which played out in X-Men Volume 2, issues 182 to 187. This was 2006. And in that story, Remy was death, Polaris was pestilence, Sunfire was famine, and Gazer was war. Now, you might be wondering, who the hell is Gazer? Well, Gazer was a Peter Milligan creation who first appeared during the Golgotha storyline that kicked off his run. And to be completely honest, I have next to zero memory of anything from this run, except the fact that I hated the X-Men logo they used during this time. Anyway, Merlin and Gambit collide, there's a big old purple boom, and when the smoke clears, Gambit appears to have died. Just then, portals begin to open. I think they're portals. Perhaps this is how our cocks are going to get into Mercator, finally. And we close out the story portion of this issue with Shogo Dragon moaning or, uh, in sadness. But before we're out of here, we do have one last info page. It's from the Grimoire of E, where he discusses death. Now, he mentions how death isn't always a bad guy. And that is very, very true, because in the past... Apocalypse has used the following heroes as his Horsemen of Death. Now, the first Horseman of Death we saw was Angel, or Archangel, so that's a pretty famous one. And a whole story that redefined Warren Worthington's character to this very day. You know, we still run into his his dual nature, right? Another death, and uh, your mileage may vary on whether or not this character is a hero, per se, but uh, Caliban was the Horseman of Death. We jump over to the uh, the twelve storyline Wolverine, Logan, he was Death uh, During the Dark Angel storyline Betsy Braddock herself was very, very briefly The Horseman of Death Over in, I think it was Uncanny Avengers Like an endless, endless story uh, Banshee was the Horseman of Death Dakin, Dakin was the Horseman of Death And of course, Gambit was once the Horseman of Death And I really think if we go through the Horseman of Death That we've actually seen on panel They're mostly good, guys. That's a, it's pretty interesting to think about. And hell, even our Anubis-headed friend doesn't seem all bad, does he? Anyway, that is where we leave it. Uh, next episode, we're going back to limbo for New Mutants number 26. That's another story that feels like it's never going to end, but, uh, well, since I did put a six-month break in there, I guess uh, that's kind of my fault. But for now, let's uh, talk in brief about this issue, which I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Um I feel like Knights of X is wildly unnecessary. I feel like this other world stuff, we don't need it. This is definitely an example of current year comics bloat. You know, it's not necessary. We we wouldn't lose anything by not having it. It's nowhere near as exploitative as what uh, DC is doing with Batman books, but uh it definitely feels like an overpriced afterthought. And and again, I didn't hate it. <laughs> I didn't hate the issue. Uh I think Part of that has to do with me knowing that this is just a five-issue mini. I think that's really, really helping me to stay positive. Of course, there is the Betsy Britton solo follow-up, which, I don't know if that's been confirmed as an ongoing or a mini. I don't even know if there's any such thing as an ongoing anymore, but, um... Well, we'll worry about that, like, in 2027, when we finally get to covering it here on the show. For now, what's our main takeaway here? Gambit's dead. Huh, okay. Okay. On one hand, that's an otherworld death, so we'll discuss that in a minute. But on the other hand, I've been back behind the mic for this show for seven episodes now, after the break. And I don't think we've had a single issue where someone didn't die. Maybe the Wolverine Chase issue? There was no no actual deaths? But uh, I, I feel like every single issue, we're just rattling off, you know, this character died, this character died, and this character died. Which, I mean, that's not a problem with this issue necessarily It's more a problem with this era But, I mean, when you're gonna kill someone like Gambit Who is, whether you like him or you hate him He is a legacy character now He's been around for, you know, three decades That's a long damn time And I feel like you do the character a great disservice Again, whether you like him or you don't like him He's been around He's been wallpaper for a lot of the time But you're killing him in the quote-unquote, like, meaningful way Because this is Otherworld but when people are dropping every single issue or there's the, the cliffhangers with people maybe dying, but it doesn't matter if they die or not, it's just it's just too much, and this death is rendered meaningless. And I, I understand that this is another world death, and it it is intended to be something different than the you know multitude of other deaths that we're surrounded with, but unfortunately for poor Remy, he's just another body on the pile. And he's just like a facilitator for the next half of the story It's like, oh, Gambit's dead, portal's open We'll worry about collecting the body later You know, and again, this is not the fault of anybody involved with this issue If anything, I'm pretty sure uh, Teeny Howard and Excalibur Have abused the whole mutant death and resurrection thing less than any. I, you know, I'm trying to think I don't know that there's been a death in our little Excalibur corner Besides, you know, Betsy during uh, the Exa-10s So, you know, credit where it's due. It's just such a shame that we can lose a character like this, and I can only speak for my own reactions, but I didn't even bat an eye. I was just like, yeah, all right. And, and I mean, Gambit was one of my favorite characters growing up, and here he is, potentially dead. (laughs) And I'm just like, all right, what's next? You know, it just doesn't affect, it doesn't hit the same way, and that's really unfortunate. So what do we say about Gambit here? He hasn't really been vital in the books for... Ever (laughs) I mean I don't think he's been vital Since like 1999 He had a pretty good First decade Until uh You know Subsequent writers came in And and thought that uh, We were all too smart And too cool For a 90s character Like Gambit So they just uh Shoved him into the background Kinda you know Up there next to Deadpool and Cable Until the You know The civilians The uh The non-comic fans Discovered Deadpool's LOL randomness And uh Made him more of a Household name But um I don't know where we go from here. Maybe bringing Gambit back, all other world screwy, could reinvigorate him a bit. Maybe we can re you know reinvent the wheel with Gambit. Uh, we do know that the death tarot card doesn't actually mean death. Instead, it means change. I mean, that's kind of a a trope when the death card comes up in any kind of fiction. So maybe we're getting all shades of symbolic here. Who's to say? And hell, you know what? Silver lining here, maybe with the death of Gambit, we will actually wind up getting some rogue on panel as the grieving temporary widow, right? I mean, despite her actually being on the official X-Men team, she doesn't really get much panel time. And she sure as hell doesn't get any dialogue. So maybe our silver lining here is that we might get Rogue in the background of a panel sobbing. And maybe they'll actually put the sobbing in a word balloon. I suppose we could dare to dream, right? (laughs) Um, What else we got here? Uh, I'm glad that we finally see Mr. M... ...being revealed, right? After, like, three and a half years of just kind of knowing he was on the fringes somewhere... ...it was cool to see him, uh, actually revealed. Looking forward to seeing more of him, and hopefully, eventually, he gets the F out of Otherworld... ...so he can maybe be part of stories that are more interesting to me. What else? What else? Um, the art. The art was fantastic. Uh, Bob Quinn, such a talent. a uh, really, really beautiful book here, um... Fantastic work, just as we expected. You know, really, really, really good. So yeah, like I said, this was kind of a refreshing surprise. I did not hate it. But, uh, well, it wouldn't be the back end of this program if I didn't pick some nits. So, well, let's let's do that a little bit here. Um, I struggle to find the point of Shogo being forced to witness Gambit sacrifice. I mean... It's not like Shogo's life has been sunshine and rainbows to this point. I don't know why he would be forced to see this. Is it it a way to like toughen a poor baby up? It just feels like a scene that's happening for no reason, other than to remind us that Shogo is there. And I don't know why he would need to be tormented the way he was in order to just remind us that he's there. It just seems... I don't know. You know, the old the old X-Lapse joke when we cover an Excalibur book is like, I feel like I missed an issue. I can't say that now, especially since I put such a long break between the issues. I, you know, my memory is what it is. I'm just human. But uh, I don't know. This just feels wrong to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Don't know. Another thing that really stood out to me um, regarding this issue was uh, Shatterstar and Richter's romp beheading vampires and having a grand old time while doing it. I feel like that was a little bit gratuitous Um, I don't know why they were doing it Maybe it was just to have a good time I don't know But to me, it just didn't come across as heroic You know, um, vampires, good, bad, indifferent, whatever Seveleth is their realm, right? So you bust in there and you start chopping off heads And joking about it as you do so And then reflecting upon it fondly I don't. I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a little too precious, I don't know But I, I really miss stories where I felt like I could root for the heroes uh, A lot of the characterization here is like I hate to evoke the name, but if Joss Whedon wrote Arthurian Legend Or, perhaps more accurately, if a high school student obsessed with Joss Whedon wrote Arthurian Legend I mean, characterization here, motivation here Could be boiled down to Snark Look at me Poor attempts at comedy, and everybody's an asshole. Like I've been saying, you know, there's a way to write characters where they can be complicated and multifaceted, but just taking a character and adding assholeish qualities to that character—I don't know—we get into that weird dissonance where it's both tryhard and lazy, and that's how some of the characterization came across here, and it sucks because usually characterization is where I give Teeny Howard. Most of the credit here. I think uh, characterization and the interpersonals is where this book truly shines. I wonder if this might be a case of uh, truncation. The comic book industry realities being what they are, perhaps this story was originally going to be 12 issues, or this arc was going to be 12 issues. And maybe after getting the sales report for the first issue, it was decided to retroactively make it a five-issue miniseries, and with less paginal real estate to play with, uh, perhaps uh, subtlety went out the window, and we needed to just make some points as quickly as possible. Because like I said, I usually give all the credit in the world to Taney for characterization. Just here, in certain scenes, it just didn't work. And yet, I still didn't hate it. Maybe I finally... Lost my damned mind You tell me Which I suppose is a pretty decent segue into uh, telling you how you can tell me. You could find me several different places on the internet. Uh, Xlapsed on Facebook, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, Chris and Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, uh, Twitter, uh, Ace Comics. You can find me all those places. You could tell me just how little of my mind I still have left. Uh, or you could talk to me about the weather. Or you could talk to me about anything your heart desires. But I think that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.